You just have to go and I'm find. I'm so glad li- we had this conversation. You got to go find long lines and just do it like one person after the next and just see this whole line <laughs> just devolve into chaos. <laughs> As everybody's like, well, how dare you? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so the book is Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe by Dr. Jess P. Shatkin, who is a professor of child and adolescent psychology, psychology, psychiatry, and pediatrics. I mean, they're, the they're basically the same thing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I didn't. <laughs> Dr. Shatkin, if you're listening to this, I apologize for <laughs> that. Was, that was a joke. Don't hundreds of people suddenly be offended. Who am I kidding? We don't have hundreds of people listening. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nervous laughter. (laughs) (laughs) We wish he was joking, but he's not. Sorry, Jess. (laughs) Stop Uh, talking to your wife on here. Anyway, Shatkin, other other Jess. Anyway. Other Jess, okay. Yeah, anyway. So so we're starting now, then. (laughs) Oh, yes, we've started long ago. Oh, okay, cool. So anyway, yeah, hi, guys. Um... This is uh, James, Aaron, and this is Men With Hats. I figured we could do that afterwards. No, oh, okay, well, well. Going with the whole, uh, so before we were on the air, we started talking about, uh, what was that TV show called? Oh, uh, Candid Camera. Candid Camera, yeah, yeah. And how the uh, how that started with this guy that would just hit the record button and not actually turn on the record light so yeah. that people didn't know that they were on the air. Because people weren't natural when they are on the air. And they would get so much better content when they didn't know that they were on the air. And this is what always happens to us. We have awesome stuff happen right before we start recording. So we need to have somebody just start recording for us. And we need, you know, we need a uh, um, a producer. We need, we need a producer. And, well, then we'd also need to be in the same place at the same time. That sounds expensive. Well, I'm yeah. just going to throw that out there. That sounds expensive. Well, we'd need a producer, which would mean we actually had a company, which would mean that, you know, we had revenue <laughs> it would it means having a, company does not necessarily having a company does not necessarily mean you have revenue <clears throat> I, I would i was assuming that revenue preceded company because i don't really think of starting a company until there's you know means to start a company at least a little bit of means anyway i'm thinking of this thing like a few years in in, gotcha. in this in this dream that i'm working on right now <laughs> We're several years into a successful company and we have a producer Chicken who can hit record. Chicken or the egg, James. Chicken or the egg. It's that idea dot 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 profit. <laughs> so uh, this was kind of a cool book to, uh, to, to talk about on the podcast because uh, we actually got access to this book before it was available to the public. That was kind of so fun, actually. On the on the front of the book that I'm holding in my hands, it says, Uncorrected Manuscript for Limited Distribution. I was so and, excited uh, to get that one in the mail. I was like, I, I feel know, so it special. <laughs> it's like, no one else, you know, in, in the general public at least, has seen this book yet. And uh, I, I hold it in my hands. So it goes on sale in October 2017. Oh, when are we supposed to air this, by the way? Can we do that this week? <laughs> I will double check that before we air this this week. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they said late September. I'm, no, no, I'm, late I'm August. I'm pretty late sure. August. Was it late August? I'm pretty sure it's late August. That's a good thing to check. <laughs> oh, man. Are we you getting- know what? So technology, I've got my smartphone here. I'm just going to go ahead and double check it. Oh, we're leaving all of this in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Here we are <clears throat> just going ahead with plans and being like, oh, wait. When did these people actually want to be aired? In the meantime... So I was actually concerned that we weren't going to be able to get to record this week because of the storm. Yeah, yeah. that's Yeah, talk about that, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Hurricane Henry. My goodness. it's um, It's been rather large. Yeah, have you been following it on the news at all, James? Not overly. I'm not a big news person, just to be yeah, 100% honest I don't about blame that. You. I don't really so, like the news, but I... Local I, news. Honestly, my uh, news source is Reddit, to be completely honest. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, if something's going on, I just go to the front page, <clears> and I know whatever I need to know will be there in, like, five different formats. Right. I'm serious. Right. Like, as soon as the... Like, while the hurricane was going on, there was a live feed of updates, 
of everything going on with the hurricane. There were multiple articles and discussions about the hurricane. I mean, like every, everything you need to know about whatever big news is going on is going to be right there whenever you want to find out. That's right. That's right. The local news, be it TV, which I don't have a TV, but all of the local news stations do you know, live broadcasts on, on Facebook. And Just stuff throwing like that. this out there. Aaron loves to bring up the fact that he doesn't have a TV. It comes up in like every other episode. <laughs> does it really? It does. Do I talk like, about it that frequently? Oh, e- almost every other time we talk, it's like, oh, and I don't have a TV. It's just, you know, I'm better than you. <laughs> I mean, I am. That's not necessarily because I don't have a TV, but I am better than you. You see, you see what I have to deal with, people? You see this? This this is what I have to I deal with. I don't have a TV. We actually recently got rid of Netflix. So, you know, we're, we're really heading back to the Stone Age. Pretty much. It's the way of the future. Yep. I enjoy my Netflix. I'm unashamed. Good for you. Good for you. No, we, we find we spend way too much time on Netflix. It's like, uh, you want to watch like a 25-minute show and then like three hours later. Then 25 episodes later. here. <laughs> yeah, maybe we should do something with our lives. Mm. Nah. Now let's finish the season. Okay. <laughs> Which one? Oh, yeah. the the next one. <laughs> well, the ninth season. Oh, we're in well, six right we, now. We Come just on. We can make started it to the, ninth the next season, today. season. We have to keep going. <laughs> but there's 25 episodes in the season. That stupid autoplay. Ah, oh, that autoplay. It kills me. You're like, all right, we're done yeah, with this. And the next one know. starts. I, You're I like, no. <laughs> anyway. Um. So, but anyways, yeah. So uh, we don't have a television. But all of the news stations broadcast live on Facebook and stuff like that. I do have Facebook, so I guess that makes me old because that's not where kids are these it's days. It's so weird. Every time they're like, are oh, you still on Facebook? Like, what? yes. So is everybody else that yeah. I know. <laughs> so um, like 24-7, that's all people have been talking about. I think at one point yesterday afternoon, they mentioned that North Korea may have launched a missile over Japan or something like that. But that was like less than 30 seconds of a spot on the news. And then we went right back to hurricane coverage. I did not even hear about um, that. So there has been an incredible amount of damage, uh, more so to the south and east of us. Um, We actually didn't flood, which is pretty surprising. There was some pretty devastating flooding. I was surprised Um, to hear that. I couldn't believe it because I heard it was Houston and you guys are Houston. Yeah. it's. uh, I guess it's the benefit of living on the – we're right on a fault line. So – we're kind of on a slope. The front of the house is actually lower than the back of the house. And we sandbagged the back of the house because the flow of water generally does cause water to stack up on the back porch. Um, but anyways, we're, we're pretty thankful that we made it through without any flooding. And uh, the storm, as it looks like it's going right now, is going back out to the Gulf and maybe making a second landfall in uh, like East Texas, Far East Texas, or maybe Louisiana. Um, but there's still... There's just uh, millions and millions of dollars worth of damage. I tried to go to work last night because they were short. And um, like there's there's no less than, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six uh, major highways between me and work. And I could not get to work because all of those major highways were shut down at one point or another or impassable. Man. So um, it's been... It's pretty incredible the amount of power that just a storm like that can uh, can let loose. Yeah. So, but either way, our uh, our prayers are with everybody down there. If you could find a way to support yeah, people, um, you know, um, there's multiple ways to do that. I know Red Cross is doing a lot. Um, yeah, I was gonna say I I, I did uh, I, I was looking at ways if uh, if you feel so led to contribute, be sure that you actually know. The organization that you're contributing to because um in unfortunately in any of these kinds of uh disaster situations there are loads and loads and loads of people that uh try to take advantage of people's uh giving spirits and um so definitely make sure that you know who you're giving money to uh the red cross is always a good one um there's others just vet them you can google i think the new york times had a good article that had uh, a dozen or more organizations local to Houston that uh, that were accepting donations of various kinds, not just money, um, but also supplies and yeah. time. If you live in the in the local Houston area, yeah. Either way, so just uh, yeah, be in be in prayer for everybody down that way, and and not just Houston, the other areas that are affected as well. And yeah, if you can support, please do. On to the episode.
James. Aaron. Men with hats. All right, guys. So, Dr. Jess Shatkin. Really cool guy. Really enjoyed the conversation with him. Really personable. Uh, just Very much so. Yeah, I mean, really, really down to earth. Really friendly dude. Really, really had a good talk with him. Uh, he was actually asking us what we thought about the book. I mean, really, you know, really, really uh, open and honest guy. Um, comes mm-hmm. from a really good place to have a conversation like this. Anyway, introducing the book. Anyway, Born to be Wild. Um, not exactly what it sounds like, interestingly. Um, <clears throat> Born to be Wild is about basically talking about adolescent risk-taking and how ba- the breaking down why adolescents actually take risks. And it, it was a very interesting educational read because it made total sense, but it was completely not what you would expect going into it. Um, breaking yeah. down a lot of myths as to why adolescents take risks and putting up really solid reasons as to why they do. And so the the case of the book is basically saying, here's how to help adolescents not take unnecessary risks. Here's how to encourage them to take good ones. Um, Not saying, not doing the all risk is bad and not doing the let them make their mistakes they have to. Um, It's a really really good perspective, honestly, for pretty much wherever you're coming from. Uh, It really doesn't matter where you're coming from be it uh religiously or unreligiously whatever your perspective is this book actually has some good things to say mm-hmm. um which i i really appreciated uh about the book he really doesn't come to it with any sort of slant it's just like here's how people are and this is a good way to help people progress yeah, properly yeah. and i think james you found it especially helpful kind of in clarifying some things that uh, as we talked to dr shacken during the episode um it seemed like there was a lot of things that kind of clarified in your mind. Uh, some, you know, some of the things that you see in um, your ministry with kids and with teens, um, and stuff that was really practicable and and actionable for you. Yeah, no, it, it really it made a lot of sense because I mean that's that's the thing that I'm dealing with all the time is trying to help teens not <clears throat> take these unnecessary risks. And the thing that we always think of is, hey, we'll just help them understand just how dangerous it is. And through through Dr. Shatkin's research and his work and everything, it's you know, we were finding out that that's not what fixes things mm-hmm. because they already know how dangerous these things are. So it doesn't matter how much. Anyway, I don't want to take away from the actual interview itself. But listen, you guys will definitely find it very informative, very helpful. Um, you might be asking, okay, how does this help me to be a better man? Well... Men need to show. That's a good a, question. Men need. We're to about show, to answer. Yeah, younger men, how to <laughs> be men. That's a big part of being a man is bringing others up with you, and so knowing how best to help the next generation follow you. Um, even if you are, if you are in the adolescent stage right now, maybe this will help you to know how to go through it better and to become a better man, or even just mm-hmm. to work with your friends around you. Um, for everybody, this has application uh, for how to be stronger, better, more complete, able to lead better. So uh, I, I don't think I have anything else to say about the episode, except uh, you're going to enjoy it. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoy. All right. Here we go. So we have Dr. Jess Shatkin here. Uh, we're going to be talking about his new book that will be coming out. It's called Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Keep Them, How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Um, so we're going to be talking through some of the concepts that are in the book, kind of understanding the the background for uh, why this book was written, why it is an important book, um, especially if you have, um, unlike myself or James right now, if you have teens um, or uh, or kids in the adolescent period, um, kind of understanding the ways that their minds work, uh, the, the ways that their minds work differently from the minds of adults and how to keep them safe in the process of all that. So Dr. Shatkin, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. So a bit of a leadoff question. Um, what I was really interested in finding as reading through this book is that there were two things that really popped out to me was that, Jess, you, one, really care about people. And two, a lot of your life has really been formed by these kind of seminal moments that you've had with uh, interactions with people around you, be it either through tragedy or through a lot of the the people that you've known. Um, if you could just talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the one you mentioned it in the introduction, um, and it's even actually the dedication of your book is for uh, a, a young kid named Huey, who was a friend of yours growing up. 
Um, and that that really seems to be one of the main moments that actually sent you in the direction that you went. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it's always interesting when you look back at your life and you try and identify where it was that something might have gotten triggered or started up because in general, I think that most of us don't have these big moments that just change us radically. We tend to you know, follow a fairly steady path. There are bumps in the road. There are things that turn us one way or another. But uh, yeah, you point out this uh, story about this boy, Huey, who was 10 years of age. We were in fifth grade together, and he went, uh, went um, home one afternoon and got on a friend's mini bike without a helmet, rode down a hill, hit a bump, flipped over, crashed. Um, I don't know what the injury was, but he went into a coma of some sort, was on respiratory support, and we didn't hear much in school. You know, this is back in the 70s, really the early 70s. There wasn't a lot of talk or a lot of a lot of understanding of what kids should be told in the classroom or how they mm -hmm. should be told. We had some conversations, as I recall, with our teacher, who was a wonderful guy um, who, who spoke with us. But I, I don't remember much of the detail, except for that one day, about two weeks later, we learned he wasn't going to wake up, and they were, they were turning off life support. Yeah. So that's the first, like, I had engaged up to that point as the youngest of five kids, and in the 60s and 70s, I'd seen a lot of reckless behavior amongst my siblings, amongst my siblings' friends, and I think that we had a pretty loose upbringing back then where we were kind of let to run free wherever we wanted. <laughs> yeah. That was the first time that I came face-to-face -face with something terrible happening as a result of that freedom. So, I mean, you're, it sounds like anyway, that kind of your mental process at that point really changed to kind of ask, why would somebody do this? You know, like, and, and from there on out, would you say that that was a bit of a formative moment for you kind of wondering then why people actually take these risks? Like, what's the point? Well, I, I don't know if I thought about risk taking then, but I certainly, you know, as we understand child development up until about six or seven, kids don't really get the concept of death very well. Yeah. On 10, you get the concept of death. You understand that death is permanent and unless, you know, you may have certain faith that, that tells you people are coming back or there's a heaven or what have you, but but you don't expect to see them again on this world. Right. And that is what uh, I think uh, we all understood at that point. And I think that that was a uh, waking up for many of us. But as you read in the book, and as happens with people, you know, that's just the beginning of risk taking really for young people around 10, 11 years of age, and it really amps up in the next 10, 15 years, and then settles down again. So while I may have had a, a cognitive or an understanding of it some way, a knowledge understanding, I don't think that my behavior changed much at that point. Hmm. Okay. So that was that was kind of like, a, I guess, a beginning awareness for you, and yeah. that, that would allow you to kind of form some some stronger opinions yeah. later on. Yeah. Yeah. My, you know, my dad, um, we, we grew up sort of a middle-class family, but my dad was a doctor, and um, I understood what he did and how important that seemed, and I early on wanted to follow in that pathway. And this was one, another one of those things. It's like, oh, wow, you know, how do you intervene? How would you think about this? And again, I don't think I had those thoughts much at that age, but I knew I wanted to help in some way. Cool. So, and then uh, you have another another event that you mentioned in the book. You had a friend uh, who had been diagnosed and then actually passed away from from HIV as well, and that kind of pushed you more into the public health field. Yeah, yeah. In college, you know, I went to college at UC Berkeley, and in I, I was there from eighty one to eighty five, and it was around 1980, 79, 80 when we first heard about HTLV three or what became HIV, this virus. And throughout the 80s then, I got involved in public health, got interested in those courses at school, got interested in volunteering my time. And then just because it's the Bay Area and there were a lot of students who were out of the closet and open about their uh, sexual orientation, you meet people who were gay and who were engaged in um, sort of a different life outside the college. And I just got to be friends with a lot of folks and saw a lot of people. And, and the guy I was referring to in the book is a friend from college who... Um, who died? He got uh, he got HIV, and a few years after he died, there weren't many good treatments back then, hmm. and it was it was really um, you guys might be a little young to to remember that that vibe that this was 30 years ago, maybe you weren't alive, but it was intense, and it was like a, it was like a, the the fear of the plague. Everyone was reading Camus, you know, novel The Plague, and and thinking in a very existential way, and it yeah. felt like God, something terrible could happen, and nobody knew. I mean, beyond sex and drug use. We knew that those were clear ways to pass it on, but there's a lot of questions about other ways in the, in the early 80s, and there's a lot of fear. And um, I don't know, all the science I'd read at that point, the classes I'd taken suggested that it was just really those two things, blood transfusions that caused mm -hmm. this problem. Uh, and I felt that then there was a lot of bias against people who uh, fit into those categories. You know, there's yeah. a lot of bias against uh, um, gay people. There's a lot of bias against people who use drugs. And and I don't know, for whatever reason, based on my upbringing, I was kind of a, a guy who wanted to to 
level the playing field a little bit and and um, help people and understand myself better. And mm-hmm. so HIV became, if you were interested in public health in the 80s, that was a real sentinel thing. I'm just like, wow, that's that's something you got involved in because it was a real misunderstanding. I mean, Reagan wouldn't say the word HIV or, mm-hmm. or AIDS for huh. many that was a big controversy. I don't. I'm not sure he ever said it during his whole oh, wow. presidency. Huh. Uh, he said it towards the end, but there was a lot of controversy. People were very angry about that. So this became a, a a sort of a point of ignition for a lot of people interested in healthcare who wanted to do something in in health, but who um, maybe didn't know that much. And I was just a kid in college. So, but I, as you say, James, I had a friend who died, and I had other friends who got sick, and many many people were very very scared. And it was something that again got me thinking that. Although I'd like to be a doctor, if you're a doctor, you work one-on-one with one person at a time. If you could educate a population about condom use, about how to clean needles and a little bit of Clorox, if they are so unfortunate as to be using IV drugs, mm. then you can save a lot of lives. Yeah. So was that a conscious thought on your part to uh, kind of go where those um, maybe underserved or kind of the outcasts of society were? Or was that just kind of where you found yourself? Um, you know, as you say, having those friends that were in those situations and wanting to help the people that you found around you? I think, um, you know, probably in, in the case that I just described with HIV, I certainly, again, I, I met a lot of people who ultimately um, got exposed to the virus. Okay. But uh, some of them were friends, some of them were acquaintances, some through work, some through personal. <clears throat> the the issue of wanting to help, I mean, I, I thank you for the introduction you gave me, James, in the beginning when you said, you know, I'm a guy who wants to help. I think most of us want to help. I really do. I think, I, I mean, almost everybody with rare exception, we just don't know how. We don't know how to figure it out. Mm. And I think that's where I was at the time. I wanted mm. to do something because I know that when I do things that help others, I feel better. And I know that I feel good about that. And I feel like I like the engagement that happens with people yeah. when you're when you're trying to solve problems together. But I don't think I had a big agenda other than I wanted to go into healthcare because that sort of made more sense to me. And there was a there was a real knowledge base in healthcare, science to it, and and that stimulated me intellectually. And then at the same time, if you could do something that actually helps other people, like like you do, Aaron, you know, flight nurse. I mean, there's a there's a real technique. There's skills you have to know, have to have. There are things you have to know, and then you get to do something, and you see people. Well, you, they may or may not respond in, in the cases we're in at times, but you know yeah. you've done something that matters. Yes. Yeah. That's a huge that's a huge gift. So everybody wins. So I, I guess I knew I wanted to do something in that vein. You know, the other thing that interested me so much growing up was music, and I was a guitar player and played bands and things, but I don't think I was ever good enough to uh, really make a living at that, nor brave enough, but uh, that would have been fun too. Yeah. A lot of resonate with both of us. We both love yeah, music. We're and both, both musicians play. as yeah. well. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, so that... This so the desire to help people that brings us down to your book, and so this this to me has been a really interesting read because there aren't many books that you read that kind of bring you to those aha moments. You know, they give you the "huh, I never thought of it that way" kind of things, and uh, that's honestly one of the things I really appreciate about this is in your book you're actually coming to some of the most I'd say preconceived notions when it comes to why teens take risks. Because, I mean, if somebody had asked me why, I mean, and for me as well, I work with teens. You know, this, this is a big part of my life is that I, I mentor and work with teens and I deal with a lot of teens that do stupid things. And uh, if somebody asked me, a lot of what I probably would have said would have been going back to the, yeah, they feel like they're invincible. And, and the funny thing is only having been there 10 years ago, I can look back and know that, you know, well, yeah, I, I sort of felt invincible, but reading your book makes a lot of sense. So this brings us to some of the ideas that you're, you're, you're putting out there that change, I think, a lot of perspective and a lot of awareness campaigns and things that you have, I think, I don't know, I've, I've found to be somewhat, I don't know, whenever I see, and I have to say this really carefully, <laughs> whenever I see a bumper sticker that is this kind of awareness most of the time, it's something that 95% of the population out there is very much aware of and very much understands. However, when I'm looking at your book, it's not that kind of thing. It's very much an awareness that is not there and is not held that, you know, everybody says, you know, teens take risks because they feel invincible, you know, because they just, they're at that point in life and, you know, they're full of life and vigor and they can do all this stuff and they don't, they don't even think about it. They throw caution to the wind and they don't even realize the fact that they could get hurt. But then you start throwing out these statistics like teens think they are, you know, it, if, if they have unprotected sex, there's 90% chance that they're going to get pregnant. I mean, these, these, off yeah. off the charts, you know, inaccurate, but so much more than the actual yeah. risk statistics. And right. 
What was, I mean, so as you were finding these things out, kind of walk us through the process of discovering just this vast discrepancy in reality versus public perception. Yeah. So first, thank you for your comments on the book. And for me, I think what I tried to do, and it sounds like it worked with you at least, James, was I tried to relate my ahas as I went, got into the study of this and shared that then with the audience. And I hope that um, sounds like you had the same experience. For me, training in you know, I worked for about a decade in public health. I went to med school when I was 29. I went through residency in general psychiatry, then a fellowship in child psychiatry, then I started working. And whether intentional or not, my assumption, that is whether someone taught me this directly or whether I just assumed it, like everybody else, like you said, I figured that adolescents take risks because they think they won't get hurt. And you don't really remember why you, you know, swam across the river drunk when you're, you were 15 or 16, when you're (laughs) 15 years old, you don't really remember those things. So I didn't know, I guess I just assumed like everybody that that it was because they thought they were invincible. And I started developing a resilience program for a high school here in New York City about seven, eight years ago. And that's when I started getting into the literature because I wanted to develop skills and techniques that kids could use to think about risk and to think about how to keep themselves safe. And as I delved into the literature, I was, it was aha. It was like, for me, it was a major deal. I remember reading one particular article, a very detailed uh, review, which I referenced in the acknowledgments by Valerie Reyna. Um, called risk and rationality and adolescent decision making, and it, it was it was remarkable to me how much data there was that kids don't think they're invincible. Mm-hmm. And when you look at you know low probability earthquakes or tornadoes or high probability events or higher probability events like a pregnancy with unprotected you know sex, still it's way overestimate. And really, until they're in their late twenties at least, and many adults still overestimate, but kids really overestimate yeah. the risk <laughs> that things happening. As you said, you know, if you ask uh, again, you go back to your the, the teens you work with and mentor. If you were to pop a question to them, say, "What's the risk of two people who have unprotected intercourse getting pregnant?" One time only, they'll tell you. I mean, almost without question, ninety plus percent, and the mm-hmm. risk is is really quite a bit lower than that. But the reason that matters, I mean, it's a cool party trick, but the reason it really matters is that all of our interventions or many of our interventions, dare, scared straight, the way that we teach sex in schools or sex education in schools are based on these threats, these worries that, hey guys, if you don't do this, something bad is going to happen. But the point is kids already think something bad is going to happen. And they think it's much more likely to happen than it actually will. So the more we keep hammering them with detail, they just don't need it. They don't think about it. They don't register it other than to think, oh, the number is really high, but how does that affect? Uh, but, but still there's other things driving their risk taking. And I think the book was really an effort to identify what are the other things that are driving the risk taking and then how can we work on those things? Mm. Yeah. So real quick, just just for the listeners then who obviously haven't read the book yet, because, well, it's not out yet, but we'll tell them how to <laughs> – we'll, we'll tell them how to pre-order when we hit the end of this thing. But uh, you you kind of identify what kind of risk-taking you're talking about. Because right in the beginning, you, know, you do talk about how you know there's some kinds of risk-taking which are very good. I mean, just you know, as we were talking a second ago, you said being a musician, that wasn't something you felt like taking a risk for. But had you, that wouldn't have been a bad risk to take. You know, right. So why don't you just, just quickly for everyone, define the kind of risks that we are talking yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the good risks, as you're talking about, you know, playing music, uh, running for school president, trying out for the football team, those are all really good risks. You don't know if you're going to make it. You're not sure. Raising your hand in class and, and, and saying your opinion. That's yeah. <laughs> How many people drive down the road at 80 miles an hour and don't feel stressed at all doing probably the most dangerous things they <laughs> regular basis. But raising their hand in front of 10 people in a classroom, whether they know these people or don't, causes like immediate intense fear, sweating and, you know, rapid yeah. heart. And, you know, it's ironic because the driving is, of course, so much more dangerous. Yeah. But so those, those are all good risks. The, the, the bad risks are the things like you know, driving fast or the unprotected intercourse or trying drugs, the things that can get you into a lot of trouble. I mean, it's fascinating, but you know, many kids try tobacco, but about 32% of kids who try tobacco will continue to smoke tobacco and become addicted to cigarettes. Hmm. It's not that one time smoking made them an addict, but once they try it, they like it or they like something about it and they keep going. So, you know, that gets to some of our treatments later, but the, the goal with exposures like that is to hold them off as long as possible okay. with things that are potentially very dangerous to them. That's good. Okay. So, and then one of the things that I thought was really interesting is while we are talking about how kids don't necessarily believe they're invincible and they believe all this, you talked about something called optimistic bias. I really, I really like that because it does set it off and it makes a lot of sense. It still doesn't explain the phenomenon of kids taking risks, but it does kind of, it starts to help you understand what pushes them in that direction. Talk about that for a sec. 
Yeah, so many of us think that we're better than we actually are. That's called self-assessment bias, and most of us have it. Many yeah. of us think we're better looking than we are, or we're smarter than we are, or you know, whatever it is. And there's probably some sort of ego preservation to that. I, there's some great statistics I, I cite in the book. You know, if you ask college professors if their work is above average, 94% say their work is above average. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a child psychiatrist here in New York, work with a lot of adolescents, young adults as well. And I, I, I joke that you've never seen more, you know, gifted kids than in New York City, right? Where everybody is gifted in <laughs> <Yeah>. their <laughs> kids. And it's probably true in every town or city. So yes, uh, that self-assessment bias similar is something called optimistic bias, which happens because we think that even though the risks might be high, even higher than they actually are, we think that we might do something that preserves us or makes us a little bit, you know, more careful and more safe than other people. So, you know, yeah, I know I shouldn't drive drunk, but when I drive drunk, I roll down the windows, I turn on the air conditioner and I blast, you know, Lady Gaga. So I sing along <laughs> and that keeps me alert and awake. Well, it doesn't alert and awake, A, and B, everybody does that kind of stuff. So that's called pluralistic ignorance. You sort of think you do something others don't do, but in fact, you do the same things everybody yeah. else does. So the one is tempted to think, and, and so there are some kids who have that pluralistic ignorance, that optimistic bias, and we know that, but the reason that doesn't account for the risk-taking behavior is that adults have the same thing. It's not just kids who have it. And you could argue that, oh, it's just kids who have this, but, but in fact, in most studies, adults have just as much, if not more. And maybe it's the longer you live, the, the more risks you take, the better you get at sort of kidding yourself that you're not going to have trouble. But adults are actually quite optimistic about the risks they take often. So it's not enough to count for the problem. <laughs> Is it just that we've reinforced that, that mindset so many times that we think we're so much better than everyone else that we just go on believing be. it? That's a great idea, right? So you, you know, you know, you shouldn't drive drunk, but you've done it 10 or 15 times. So you think sort of like probably something bad won't happen to me. I may be and a better driver drunk than I am sober. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, you know, who knows what people start thinking. Uh, I take, in fact, when I drive drunk, I'm really careful because I look around and make sure the cops aren't there. I, I do everything, you know, much more carefully than usual. I make sure I go 35 miles an hour exactly on the needle, you know, and that is, um, but again, that's, that's a huge mistake we, we make sometimes. But yes, yeah. it's optimistic bias. Everybody has. Adults have it just as much, if not more. So it doesn't account for the risk taking the kids engage in. Right. Yeah. I mean, would you say though, that the optimistic bias probably comes into play a lot more for adolescents because I guess the lack of experience would allow for optimistic bias to hold true a bit more strongly because you could, you could throw those things out there because you haven't had the life experience or the statistics yet to actually understand it properly. Maybe. I think that experience matters a great deal. And it's one of the most important things in keeping people away from risk, but we can't infuse kids with experience. So we have to do other mm -hmm. things. And right. they, do need, they do need experience. You know, you become a better driver if you learn at 16, 17, 18, 19, than if you learn at 35, 36. I mean, learning early does is good. It's just how we do it and how we give people those experiences. But again, kids don't have any more optimistic bias than adults. And in many cases, it's the opposite. Adults have more than kids. Really so it doesn't Mistake. Yeah. Well, and I guess that does, that does bring us to, you had a statement that I really liked. You said, adolescents are engineered for risk-taking behavior. Yeah. Um, and I think that really kind of gets us to, to I guess, more of the core of the, the main point of the book is what actually causes teens to take risks. Because just before that, you mentioned something you called the adolescent paradox, um, which is where, you know, despite the fact that teens are, you know, they are actually full of life and much more likely to live <laughs> because everything is just working so much better right then. They're, they're conditioned physically to be extremely resilient. And yet at the same time, mortality rates are skyrocketing because of these bad choices and because of the risk taking and because of just accidents. And then on top of that, the emotional sides that come into this, I think that seems to be a lot of uh, what you're saying in your book really influences these risk-taking behaviors that lead to these just sadly high mortality rates for, for adolescents is the emotional side of the brain kicking in and really starting to take over a bit. Yeah. You know, adolescents, and there are many factors, and, and we can go through them in as much detail as you'd like. But, you know, I, I, I give an example also in the book about this trip to Germany I took when I was in high school. Yeah. And it was a, it was, that was a, a fundamental effect on me too, just because I'd never been on a plane and I'd never traveled and been in another country and it was great. I was 16, but a lot of the risks, I, and I took a number of risks on that trip that I talk about. And then mm -hmm. around that time of life and, and most commonly it was to impress either my male friends to show them I was strong and tough or the girls that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. I mean, almost always. And if you add a little alcohol or marijuana, or you add again, not enough sleep, which is chronic for adolescents, they just don't make as good decisions. Yeah. 
So, I mean, give us then in a, in a bit of a nutshell, and I really, I want to unpack this a bit more because I do, again, I, I love the things that you've said in your book, but give us kind of in a nutshell then why, because we've talked about why not, why then do sure. teens take these risks? Great. Yeah. So the, the first argument is, and, and there's no one single reason, guys, it's sure. just a bunch of things, but, but starting at the very beginning, there's this thing called the neuro imbalance theory. The idea that the emotional parts of the brain, sometimes called the limbic system, develop early before the, the CEO of the brain, the frontal cortex and frontal lobe, and particularly something called the prefrontal cortex, which is really our sort of command central, before that, uh, that develops and is online. So I, in the book, I liken the limbic system to, you know, Dr. Watson of Sherlock Holmes and, Dr. and, and Watson. You know, Watson's kind of bumbling, trying to figure things out. He's kind of, you know, I'm really sure about this or that. He's a little behind Holmes. But he's looking for emotions and he's responding to emotions. When something funny, he laughs. When it's scary, he gets scared. But Holmes is more the the prefrontal cortex. You know, he's really organizing every thought and he's managing all of those emotions. The problem is when you're young, those emotions aren't well managed, which is why when you get left off a Facebook, um, you know, not tagged in a Facebook photo or you don't get invited or an email to a party or whatever it would be, you feel intense pain as a kid. And that is something that is driven by the fact that the frontal cortex is not controlling the emotions all that well. Sure. We don't control emotions perfectly well as we age ever, but we get a lot better. You know, when I was young, when I would get angry, I would kick something sometimes. I'd kick a ball. I'd kick a wall. I, I'm not probably three holes in walls in apartments I lived in in my 20s when I got frustrated or angry. Something really got to me. And I remember kicking and had to repair a couple of walls, like spackling, <laughs> you know, drywall. Good thing I was handy with that. But, you know, I just got so overwhelmed related to something. Maybe it was studying and trying to manage friendships and family. And I don't know what. But that I haven't kicked a hole in a wall in 25 years. Like, that just doesn't happen as much anymore. And you find more productive ways to manage your stress, too. But the point is that you get this intense kind of disconnect between the emotions and the thinking part of the brain. I mentioned that... It, you know, if you ask a 16-year-old, is it a good idea to climb the scaffolding on a church? He would say no, because that's in a moment of what we call cold cognition, mm -hmm. when there's nothing pushing him. There's nothing pushing his emotions so he can think logically. But when his emotions are involved, and they get involved, again, by trying to impress people, by trying to, because they are, their emotions are taking over because they're drunk or they're smoking pot or because they're, you know, staying up all night or whatever it is, then things get out of hand. So that disconnect between the frontal cortex and the emotional brain is the first thing. The second thing is, Dopamine. Dopamine is this neurochemical which we've all heard about and we all think it means something related to pleasure. Dopamine really tells us when something might be good. And what that really means is what might be good for us. It's really a, neuro a learning neurochemical. And it tells us something about uh, what's important in this world. You know, when you think about it, I, I talk in the book about how uh, when you talk to kids about sex and they finally find out how a baby is made, that a penis goes into a they're like they're slipping out. They're like, "What are you kidding me? This is like a horror story." They can't imagine. <laughs> I was I was but, laughing when reading that section. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can totally relate. You know, whenever you learned, if you can remember, it's like, "Whoa, that's, that can't possibly be right." You know, <laughs> but over time, that you you know, as your body changes, as your puberty, those things start to feel good. And what makes it feel good is dopamine. And dopamine basically tells us, "Oh, this is this feels good. This is important for survival." Like we eat mushrooms. I don't know. Mushrooms are a weird food. Who would think to pick a mushroom and eat it? But if you like the flavor of mushrooms, that triggers or the possibility of eating a mushroom makes dopamine go up and it moves dopamine up in the higher, moves mushrooms up in the hierarchy of what's important. So dopamine tells us what matters. And dopamine is more rampant in the brain in adolescence than ever before hmm. and ever again. <clears throat> so things feel really intensely and they feel really exciting. The possibility of a roller coaster. It's the teens or at the amusement parks, you know, not the not the older adults. I mean, you guys might sort of still go a little bit, but probably not all that often. And once you're 40, you'll be like, why was I so keen on roller coasters? I don't get it. <laughs> you know, when you're 15, there's like nothing better than going down a roller coaster. So the dopamine matters. There's hormones as well. You know, our body's producing testosterone, oxytocin, other hormones this time of life. And what that's doing is helping us to um, bond to others. Those hormones clue us into the social hierarchy. And that social hierarchy matters so much when you're young because the way we succeed as humans is by finding a mate, pairing with them, and having children. That's sort of the, the definition of a species success is mm -hmm. passing on genes. That's what evolution's all about. Well, so peer relations have to matter a ton when we are 
uh, adolescence because th that's when we are going to be mating. So we really, I mean, historically, maybe not these days as much, but that is the time <laughs> when we have kids. So we need to have an intense draw to other people at that time. So the pleasure response is high, so we take risks. The brain isn't well managed by the thinking part of the brain, the frontal cortex. That is, the emotions aren't well managed. The hormones are pushing us towards like really deciding um, that it's important to impress our peers and to be with our peers. And we learn a lot more about the brain. It's all throughout the book, but there's a lot more information about what it means when you're around your peers in terms of what you feel if you're left out. If you're left out, the, the same sensors in the brain that are triggered when you have an injury, a physical injury, get triggered when you have an emotional injury. Mm -hmm. So to an adolescent, particularly being left out of something feels like physical pain, but it's in your head. And it's fascinating that you can even give a Tylenol to a kid who's having, next time your child is, you know, uh, not not um, invited to a party and they're very upset, give them a little pain medicine, a little Motrin or Tylenol, and they'll feel emotionally better because hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying we should go around rampantly doing that, but, <laughs> but it does work. I mean, it's good to learn to deal That's with pain. It's really interesting, so, actually. But if, but if you have, like, the next time you're feeling really hurt, you know, your, your wife ignored you and she said she's not sure she wants to be with you and, like, you need two hours of sanity. Instead of hitting the bottle, hit the Motrin, and huh. you'll you'll feel less pain because the pain sensors are on the same part of the brain as the emotional sensors. That's fascinating. So these kind of things drive adolescents towards risk. They've got to impress their peers because they need it for their survival, for evolution. Their hormones are pushing them, dopamine's pushing them, and their brain is not well reeled in. Their emotions are not well reeled in by the frontal cortex. Those are the, that's the big picture, but there's a lot more detail in the book. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because as you're talking about this, I was kind of thinking about the difference in values that we have between adolescents and adults. And I guess then that difference between the emotional centers and the cognitive centers would create this difference in values, you know, I guess, and which is why, you know, you talked about how Dare and, uh, you know, Driver's Ed and all these programs, how they completely failed. And which is what's fascinating is that I'm sure every single adult involved in these programs thought this makes total sense. This is a great idea. If I was told this, this is the choice I would make. And then every single teen hears the exact same information. <laughs> but the change in values, I guess, would be one of those big things that not only makes uh, teens look at that and say, well, yeah, that's sure. These are the, this is the information, but I don't care. Um, but I guess also that would lead to, I guess, maybe some of the breakdown between generations, uh, where an older generation would seem, you know, boring. Whereas those exact same people that are now considered boring had the exact same value set when they were, when they were adolescents, you know, while, while their understanding and their values and their choices are actually better wiser <laughs> and uh, in a lot of ways make more sense. It's what's considered boring because of value sets being different. Yeah. You know, I, I think the reality is that most adolescents, when they hear information in a D.A.R.E. program or they hear something about drugs, they don't disbelieve it. I don't think they, yeah. I don't think they say that's bull. I think they say, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, people who, who try cigarettes can actually become addicted to cigarettes. People who try harder drugs can become addicted to those. I get that. You shouldn't drive drunk. I totally get that. Yeah. But it, there's a difference, particularly at that age, between knowing something and behaving a certain way. There's, you know, knowledge is not enough. And it's yeah. not enough adults either. It's not like just knowing, look, how, you have to live under a rock not to know that cigarette smoking causes cancer, that too much fat causes obesity, that too much obesity causes diabetes and hypertension, and that those things are killing us constantly. I mean, yeah. Everybody knows that. How you behave and how you act on that information is the challenge. So just giving kids the information alone, which is what D.A.R.E. and other things focus on, isn't enough. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's already echoing something kids already know. Their parents have been telling them for a long time that drugs are dangerous and drugs are bad. They don't need a whole program in school to tell them more about that. What they need is a way to manage that information and a way to do something with it. Yeah, and that's a good segue to kind of from what the problem is and how, how adolescents minds think differently and, and are kind of uh, pre-programmed to accept uh, these risk-taking behaviors. So moving from that to then how do you how do you manage and how do you help to kind of keep those kids safe um, as they're, you know, weathering some really difficult times in their life? Um, yeah. And it's not just, like you say, it's not just having the information that a D.A.R.E. program or a Scared Straight program is going to give them, but it's really trying to... Um, to, to help them uh, learn from the experience that adults have and to be able to use that experience in their own thought processes about uh, 
uh, about the various activities that they go about. Yeah. So in the book, I break it down in the last three chapters as to what parents can do, what schools can do, and what society at large can do. And there's a lot of fixes. I mean, some of it really starts, I start with parents because parents are the most important influence on their kids' lives and parents who can be there for their kids and who can supervise their kids and monitor their kids. And there really are some very important parenting skills that I articulate in the book that one can find articulated all over the place. I'm not, I didn't come up with these. They're really well um, based on research. You know, what's called authoritative parenting, being direct with your supportive, but loving, but very direct. There's tons of data, 50 years of data now on this, even brain scans of the adults who were raised this way as children, showing that they control their emotions better. They're better managing their own emotions. So that kind of parenting matters. There's a lot of behavioral tools that you can use with your kids, how you give an effective command, how you use positive reinforcement. I talk about that in the book. And then I talk about simply the presence of being there. This is a hard thing for families, particularly when a lot of our families end in divorce, when a lot of our families don't have two parents in the home, uh, mom or dad, whoever's living with the kids has to be working all the time. But the, the effect of having an adult around a role model, uh, in the way, James, you mentioned you do this with a church group or, or kids at, um, at your church, that really matters. That can have a, I mean, it can do nothing, but it can also have a huge impact on those kids who are, who are uh, open to it and who are, are there in attendance. And so being around your kids matters a great deal. How we manage social media, you know, there's a huge um, growing database around the effects of media on kids, particularly social media, interactive media. And our kids just don't need as much media exposure as they're getting. Most high school kids are getting eight hours a day of screen and digital time. Wow. And if you add it up, with the multitasking they do, it comes out to nearly 12 hours a day. So they're actually – if you – you could calculate listening to music and watching the computer as two things, right. but just look at one one of these uh, these digital devices in their head or on their eyes at one point in the day. It's about eight hours a day, wow. and that's a huge opportunity for influence. We know that the media kids and adults watch influences them. Mm-hmm. We know it doesn't make them into mass murderers, but we know that it definitely uh, contributes to a lack of empathy in some cases, and it makes kids feel a little distant from others, and we know that they respond to it emotionally like they do a real conversation. You know, we know that watching a, a Rambo movie gets you all jacked up and makes you want to go punch somebody. We know that. <laughs> so, you know, it's exciting and it's fun. But revenge fantasies, we know, are terrible for people. We, I mean, and that's what those movies sort of thrive on. And we yeah. know that, you know, when someone has slighted you, the worst thing for you is to sit and focus on revenge. You just feel worse. It makes your your blood pressure go up. It makes you feel more agitated. So, you know, the the, the goal here is to really monitor and manage the media and just like you monitor and manage your kids' friends for as long as you can. Kids spend a lot more time with their parents until they hit, hit puberty. And then they spend a lot more time with their friends and less time with adults. And you really want to grab hold of their behavior as early as you can and be present in your kids' lives. But as they age, of course, you still want another friend. You want another friend's parents. You want to have those people over. It's great to have a house where the kids can come and hang out. Not where the alcohol runs abundantly, but where the movies can play or where the, the ping pong table is used yeah. and where the backyard you can throw a football around and, and taking the kids out for go-kart racing and taking the kids mountain climbing and taking the kids to the beach. Those are great things because it, it taps into their dopamine-driven, novelty, thrill-seeking kind of desire in a safe or relatively safe way. So those are a lot of the things that parents can do. And there's lots of other things that's and society can do. We can talk about those too. But but the, the most important thing is parents have to have their eyes on the ball. And it's hard for parents when you've got uh, a family that's that's in many cases disjointed. And then yeah. you need to tap yeah. to the church or the school or the after-school program because that really makes a difference when you can't be there. You need someone who can. So this is kind of a, a tangential question, but it's something that, uh, as James talked about when he was talking about why we've started our podcast, something that we're very passionate about. And uh, I guess kind of our, our avatar, our, our ideal listener might be someone that um, didn't have a father growing up or didn't have two parents in their life growing up. And, and so in some ways may have, <clears throat> excuse me, have some misguided um, understandings of, of what life is or, or through those difficulties have, um, you know, differing views or, or whatever the case may be. Um, how has, in, I guess in your practice and in your experience, um, how severe is the damage that happens um, in uh, childhood and in adolescence for kids that don't have that strong kind of core family unit, especially uh, a, a strong father? 
figure? So that's that's a really great question, and there's no way to quantify it at this point in 2017 sure. because it's variable for different people. You have some kids who have a slight insult. You know, they, maybe dad was around, but he stepped out for six months and had an affair, then came back. Um, maybe he was occasionally abusive, but most kids might get through that unscathed. But this one kid is like completely decimated by it and can never get off his knees the rest of his life. Other kids grow up in the worst kind of poverty, abuse, physical, emotional, sexual. Dad's coming in and out of the house, all sorts of crazy things going on. And that kid goes off to Harvard, becomes a lawyer and, you know, just completely manages himself. Granted, he's an exception, but the, the fact is that we can't tap into one single point of reference that says, oh, this is what resilience is. This is what makes kids resilient. And so I can't give you a statistical number, but I can tell you that we now know a lot about what makes kids resilient. And some of it's inborn, some of it's your IQ to some degree, being, you know, being able to learn really effectively. Uh, you don't have to be so smart, but being able to learn well, being able to read well, being social, those kind of things help. Being in a higher socioeconomic strata does help, but it doesn't guarantee you anything. And there's a lot of things that we can enhance when it comes to resilience. We can teach kids how to manage their emotions because any of those kids you describe, uh, particularly if they didn't have a, a, a male role model around, a father, that there's a real um, – there's two parents for a reason. And you learn a lot from a dad as you do from a mom, no matter what your sex. So we, we want to certainly provide those male role models for young men who grow up without a father as soon as we can, as long as we can. But we can also do other things. We can have them mentored. We can have big brothers, big sisters. It's a great program. Mm -hmm. You know, the mentoring that you guys do in your lives is a great idea. Kids who are shy, who don't tend to speak up in class, we can actually teach them social skills so they are able to be more outgoing because more outgoing people tend to do better in this world. Yeah. And if you know, your family was oriented such that you were kind of quiet and shy and hidden away, the more we can do to bring them out, the greater likelihood they will thrive and succeed. We can teach kids how to manage their emotions. That's a huge one. And teach them how to relax themselves because we all get uptight. But again, if you don't have parents around the house teaching you how to handle a dispute between friends, that kind of thing you may not learn elsewhere. So we should be teaching them in school and at, at uh, houses of worship and, and those kind of things. Uh, when it comes to um, uh, achieving things, kids having sort of self-efficacy, feeling competent that they can actually get things done. We can teach that too. We can teach that really helpfully in school. We can teach kids how to build things and how to do well in school. When they don't do well, we can get them tutors and support. So all those kind of things can address some of what you're asking about, Aaron. It's not, it's, it may not be one size fits all, but there's a lot. When I go to schools, I say this in the book too, when I go to schools and I ask parents, I'll always at the PTA for the junior high school or the high school kids, I'll say, so what do you want for your kids? I always start to talk this way. So what do you want for your kids by the time they graduate high school? And the parents always say things like, I want them to really share well. I want him to be a great citizen. I want him to stand for democratic values. You get that one. I, I, <laughs> I want him to go to college and to feel confident in himself. I want him to have really good friends that he takes from you know, high school to college. They never say, I want him to be great at understanding Shakespeare. They never say, I want him to be really good at Euclidean geometry. Mm -hmm. I mean, those things just don't come up. And yet a lot of those things this kind of citizenship skills we don't teach directly, but we now know that we can teach them directly and we can do it pretty well. So we, we get some of that on the sports field. We get some of that in shop when we build an object and we get the competent feeling of like, wow, I built like a statue. I built a lamp. That's pretty cool. We get some of that when we do other kinds of things. And even learning geometry can help some, of course. It teaches you logic and it helps you feel like you were able to tackle this really difficult subject with a really difficult teacher. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, there's more that we can do. We can teach kids how to breathe and we can teach them mindfulness. We can teach them. We can have after school programs. Here's a big thing. that I, I know this sounds crazy. This is radical. But if we had a longer school day and started later, like started at nine in the morning and went till five or six, that would mirror what parents do. So parents wouldn't have to worry about their kids in the afternoon. And the time that our kids get into most trouble is afternoons and evenings hmm. when they're unlocked. Hmm. So if we, if we had a day where you basically have six hours of school and either interspersed or at the end of the day, you had gym, like, but a real athletic contribution, even if you're not, you know, if, if you're the fourth string running back, you know, then you're not playing football. You do something else that is meaningful to you yeah. in a sports program. So you're not just sitting by the sidelines, but you do things that get kids engaged in sports, in arts, crafts and theater games. All these kinds of things make a difference and kids feel good. And then they go home and the parents are there or a parent is there as opposed to being un chaperoned the rest of the day that's when they're hanging out at the mall getting into trouble stealing things smoking dope whatever it is yeah so i, I mean it, it's not the exact answer to your question i can't tell you who is more vulnerable than, than who else but i can tell you there's an awful lot we can do that we're not doing so 
and, and as you explain those things, they sound very almost commonsensical. Um, <laughs> the why is in so many cases just as important um, and in some cases even more important than, than what we're actually doing is the motivation um, that lies behind the efforts that we, that we make. Um, so if you could kind of talk about the why, um, not only this book, but also kind of the way that you've taken your practice and um, the patients that you serve and, and all of that, why that is so important to you. When we're, as a physician, there's only so much time in the day for everybody. and You can see one patient at a time and so you spend 15 minutes with someone, an hour with someone here, whatever it is, and you can hopefully help them and guide them, but they still have to make the decisions and the choices. There's only so much you can do for people. Maybe when they're in their hospital, you can do a little more for them and you can hold them for a while, but that's only acute care. And afterwards, they get out in the community and they have to follow through and do the things that are going to make them feel good. When it comes to prevention, we can affect many more people. And although we may not move the needle that far when we when we teach 100 people a, a, a concept as opposed to working individually for an hour with one of them, if we move the needle a little bit for those 100, we might make a much bigger impact mm-hmm. than the impact we have on that one person. And I think for me, what's what's been impressive, not only throughout my training and my clinical experience over the last 20 some years, but also the, the writing the book is that we now have a good amount of data on how we can help parents function better, schools function better, society function better, and individuals to enhance their resilience. There's a lot we can teach people, and it's pretty simple stuff. It's not, it's not rocket science. You don't have to take medicine for, the, for some of the basics, and we can be using all this time we have with kids in school to do some of this. You know, there's some there's some lovely examples. I, I reference them in the book where schools have, for example, just brought breathing in, just taught kids 15 minutes of breathing once or twice a day, and violence goes way down, and grades go way up, and school attendance goes way up, and expulsions go way down. And you know, that that's just a very simple thing, but that helps kids to calm down and self-regulate. When you yeah. regulate the body and you cool down the body, the body and the mind are really connected. So the body cools and the mind cools. And that's a big part. And that helps you to fall asleep at night, too. You know, the same sort of breathing skills are the things you can use when you can't fall asleep at night. And I've done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and sleep is a big issue. It's, it's, um, it's something that, you know, about, I don't know, half of Americans say they struggle with at times. And, and in most countries, I mean, we have a huge medicine industry, but we can also teach other skills that people can use to help themselves to sleep. Yeah. So, so these are the kind of things that I've always been interested in. I came into medicine after a decade in public health and a real interest in, in how you engage in prevention. And I've been fortunate now to come back to that. And the risk book, writing the risk book, you know, Born to be Wild, really helped me to see that again. So in my practice, I focus on a lot of prevention, even with my patients who are severely depressed and severely anxious, what have you. I still am always focusing with them on these kinds of skills to enhance their resilience and in the university at NYU where I teach, I do a lot. I run this big college program in child mental health studies. We have about 4,500 students a year in our courses. We have 47 courses, and many of our courses teach these kind of principles in one form or other to help the students to be more successful. And that's really where I'm headed. I'm actually building a new wellness program for the college this year. We're doing a very rigid test of it to see if, if the, the enhancements we make, in, we make in the dorm and the course that we teach um, based on our pilot, we can. And we hope that we can improve resilience and, and help students to stay in school longer, to be happier in school, to do better in their grades, be sick less often, feel physically better and so forth mm-hmm. by instilling some of these habits. But to be fair, these habits start early. You know, I'm a regular exerciser, I think, and, and have been for many, many years. I exercise four or five days a week. And the reason I do that is because when my parents were 50, they started jogging and I was 10. And I watched them jog every single day. And they went jogging and the weekends we went hiking. And to observe them doing that was so hugely impactful. Yeah. I started like a sloth if I didn't do that by the time I was 12 or 13. And then, <laughs> and then my friends would see them at this high school track. My parents were running at the track. And my friends who were on the track team would say, hey, I ran with your parents this morning. <laughs> by then. And they're jogging with like my friends from school. And I'm feeling like, like – so, you know, that was an amazing lesson. And But it doesn't – and parents can be hugely impressive on their kids in that way. But – but so can other people. So can the mentor. So can the minister. So can the teacher. So can the friend, the neighbor next door. It's a lot. So can the peers. So there's a lot we can do in prevention. And I, and I guess the, the point I would make is that that's the that I think is a far more important effort, uh, you know, than 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 only treating at the end. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, kind of in uh, somewhat of a closing question, is 
as a, a decent portion of our demographic listening actually still fits into this adolescent yeah. stage, um, as we've realized in shock, <laughs> we're not that far out of it. <laughs> so um, what would you say if you had to kind of condense down to like one big idea to kind of give to the adolescents listening, not just to the people dealing or helping with adolescents, but the people that actually are in this stage, what's kind of a, a good kernel of thought you would give them? Sure. When it comes to risk, I think if you had to give people one sort of just cognitive or, or, or you know, understanding point around risk, they, the point to make to young people is once is all it takes. That, you know, it's not likely that you'll get pregnant if you have unprotected sex, quite frankly. The risk is about one in 20. You know, that's not a huge risk. It's about, you know, 25%, two days around ovulation, and then it's about 3% the rest of the time of the month. Most kids think it's 90%. But even if it's 90%, they don't think that that's, that's not going to stop them from having unprotected sex. Yeah. Something else stops them. If you want to give them a cognitive tool to understand that risk, what you say is once is all it takes. And if it's, even if you're, if you're straight up about the statistics, if you say it's one in 20, then you count it out. <clears throat> 5%, by the way, kids are terrible with percents and adults are terrible too. One of my colleagues is a wonderful doctor, super well-trained. I mean, she's had like four residency programs. She's been in all <laughs> And I, we were in a restaurant the other night and going over the bill and I, and I didn't have my reading glasses, you know? And so I, I said, can you just calculate the bill? She's like 10 years younger than me. She doesn't need glasses. And she looked and she said, oh, I can't do tips. And I'm like, you can't do tips. Like, <laughs> Thank God. I mean, you have been so trained in medicine, you know, and you can't do a tip. I was so shocked. So the reality is we're terrible percents, all of us. What you say is one in 20, which means that if you have unprotected sex 20 times, then you will definitely get pregnant. And there's just no question about it. So if you have sex once a week, unprotected for the next 20 weeks, you will get pregnant. And, and, they, and if, if, you want, if you want to talk about cigarette smoking and addiction, then you say things like, if three people try cigarettes, I'm sorry, if three people have a chance to try cigarette, one of them will become addicted. You, you try to narrow it down in a really simple way. John, Bill, and Susie, and you know John's going to become addicted, whatever it is. And once is all it takes. It just doesn't take. It's not the message to your kids is not don't overdo it. It's it's once is all it takes. Yeah. And there is some risk we're all going to take. You know, we're all going to. I was in Germany, you know, a year ago, and they have the autobahn, man. And I had a car, and I drove like 110 miles an hour because I wanted to try that, and that was risky. No question. But I did it during daylight. I did it when there was no one else on the road near me. I did it in a big open lane road where there wasn't like big turns and animals about to jump on the road in yeah. front of me. <laughs> and the speed of traffic was like 85 anyway. So because they were moving fast there. So I went a little bit faster. It wasn't a crazy, crazy thing to do. Yes, it's more dangerous to drive faster. Absolutely. But it wasn't an insane moment to take a bit of a risk to get that feeling of what it's like to drive 110 miles an hour. But once is all it takes, and I have to know that. I have to know that if a rabbit did cross my path or a deer jumped out, I'm dead. It's not like I'm going to get away with it. So you have to really instill that once is all it takes in the kids. Very good. So there's, there's one more closing question we like to ask our uh, our interviewees, and that's uh, and it's it's kind of odd again when we're talking about a book that you're writing. But what is the most recent <laughs> book <laughs> that you have read that has kind of really changed the way you thought, or like you know, if you were going to buy a book for somebody as a gift? Because you thought, ah, this has shaped the way I think, or it's really impacted my life. What would that book be? Wow. That's a great question. Um, it's funny because most everything that I read in the past year was related to this book. I believe I it. <laughs> and I read, you know, dozens of books that were, you know, um, covering ground that, that is in my, in my book. Let me look at my shelves very quickly here. Okay. <laughs> See if there's something as I pull back that really spoke to me um, more than other things. Um, you know, I guess I guess the book that I would that I would point people to, a good friend of mine wrote, and he did a really nice job with it. Uh, two guys, Dan Lerner and Alan Schlechter, they wrote a book called You Thrive, and it's um, actually Alan and Dan teach a class in my college program at NYU called The Science of Happiness. And it's a really nice class and a really nice book that documents and describes a lot of the things that we can all do to enhance our resilience. It's on the, the some of the same material that I cover in my book to some degree, but it's an inspirational account of things that we can do to improve our wellness. So that that's a good one. And A Gentleman in Moscow, great novel, which I'm reading right now but haven't finished, but it's a fantastic novel. Excellent. Ah. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote that one? Um, to, to, is it? It's like... It's not a, it's not a name that rolls off my tongue. It's like 
Torres, Tones. I can look it up for okay. if you want. No, 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 that's, no, that's all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have thoroughly enjoyed having you on yeah, the podcast. It, awesome. It's it's been a joy. Uh, you have a lot of neat insights. We've really enjoyed it. Uh, and as a very important final note, how can people get a hold of your book again, Born to Be Wild? Sure. Why teens take risks and how we can help keep them safe. How can people get a hold of that? Amor Towels is the name of the guy who wrote A Gentleman in Moscow. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes. Uh, they can reach me a bunch of different ways. My book is uh, available for pre-sale on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those places, Penguin uh, website. And they can learn more about my work if they want by Googling my name. But my website is Dr. Jess P. Shatkin, S-H-A-T-K-I-N. But if you type in Jess, two S's, Shatkin, there'll be stuff. And my website comes up pretty quickly. And there's stuff about the book. There's a, I've had about 20 people review the book so far. I've gotten some great um, endorsements. I'm very excited about it. And really looking forward to October 3rd when the book comes out. So, and I really thank you guys for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Oh, again, it's, yeah, it's, it it's been pleasure. a real pleasure. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks very much. And uh, we hope to hear more about this and really wish you success with the book launch. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Thank All you. Right.